On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. I've been asked to tell you that that's 75 to about 113 litres each. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. They stayed there for a few days. Thank you, Sammy. You have a gorgeous reading voice too. So last week we talked about uh, John chapter 1 and we talked about kind of John's version of Jesus' calling of his first disciples, which is a little bit unusual and it's, it's a bit different to the way that it's told in um, Matthew, Mark and Luke as well. What basically happens in John uh, is that John the Baptist is out in the desert proclaiming the kingdom of God and saying there's someone coming who is the one that we've all been waiting for. And we talked a little bit about how um, John the Baptist at that point has really stepped out or outside of the boundaries of the established religion at that time, um, particularly the Pharisaical system um, or the rabbinic system, the way that the sacrificial system was operating in the temple. That's a whole bunch of things that I've just piled on to one another. But basically, um, the way that religion had been formulated by certain people to become a series of laws and um, rituals of purity that would guarantee that you were getting this right and so that when the Messiah came, you would be in the in crowd and not on the outside and that would guarantee that the exile was never going to happen again. There was this really clear system that had been nutted out. And John the Baptist steps right outside of that and goes, actually, something else is going on here and there's someone coming who's not what you expect. And into the midst of that comes Jesus. And when he shows up, John the Baptist goes, this is the guy. This is the one. And two of John the Baptist's disciples who um, had been following John, so had already been willing to step outside of this system to follow John the Baptist. When John says, this is the guy I've been talking about, they then follow Jesus. Uh, And we talked about cultivating that curiosity to be willing to step outside some of those established traditions and rituals and particularly a legalistic way of approaching God and to cultivate our curiosity around who Jesus is and a willingness to follow him even when it's unexpected Uh, and we talked particularly about what Jesus says to Nathaniel where he kind of takes off this story from the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible um, where Jacob has a dream and Jacob is the guy whose name gets changed to Israel and Jacob has a dream where there's this ladder going between heaven and earth and angels going up and down on this ladder. 
And Jesus effectively says to Nathaniel, I'm the latter. I am the meeting place of heaven and earth. If you want to know God, you've got to know me. I'm, I am that ladder by which you approach God and the meeting of heaven and earth. Um, and then right at the end of that, he says to Nathaniel, um, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Uh, and he says, you know, you believe because I made this comment about the fig tree, you'll see greater things than that. Now from that, we move straight into the story of a party. Um, and weddings, we think our weddings are pretty good parties. Weddings in like Jewish weddings in the first century, this was a party that went for about a week and it was full on. Um, and you were expected as the host to provide a lavish feast for all your guests and enough wine that the party could continue for a week. Um, and it was supposed to be this incredible thing. Um, and so at the beginning of our reading, we're just going to kind of work, walk through it a little bit. And then, again, similar to last week, I want to throw it open for us to chat about what this means to us. So I'm going to kind of make, um, I guess, a series of observations, maybe clarifications about some things in the passage. So it's probably helpful if you do have a device that you've got it on to have it in front of you. Um, and then we're going to talk about it together. All right, so um, John, in this first couple of chapters, he records a series of events that a lot of people think have calculated to about a week. So there's about a week worth of events that are happening here. Um, and uh, that culminates on the wedding at Cana on the seventh day of the week, um, as in terms of the week that John has laid out in terms of the events. But John specifies that it's on the third day of the Jewish week, um, which is a Wednesday, okay? which was actually normal. Uh, Jewish weddings normally started on a Wednesday. I don't know why, but there you go. Uh, they started on a Wednesday, generally speaking. Um, and so that's when this thing is happening. And um, the first thing that we notice is that it's not the end of the wedding. It's not the end of the week. Uh, it looks like it's very early on in the wedding. Um, and I don't know if they had just a whole bunch of people from Sydney or whatever the case is, but they have run out of Shiraz. And this is a tragedy. Um, and so Mary, who's Jesus' mother, actually goes to Jesus and brings this to his attention. That's actually quite a big deal in the first place, um, the fact that she brought it to his attention. And there's a whole bunch of discussion about why she would do that. Maybe she was related to the family and felt a sense of responsibility, all those kind of things. Um, we don't really know for sure. But I always find it interesting that Jesus is where she goes because there's no suggestion that he has any responsibility for the wedding. He's not the groom. He's not the master of the banquet. Um, he's obviously, it's not one of his kids. It's nothing like that. And yet she goes to him as the person to go to when there's about to be a massive social disaster. And this is a social disaster. Okay, not only was the wedding, like it went for a week and it's a huge moment in the, <laughs> that's pretty funny. Um, it's a huge moment in the, um, the Jewish society. But for you as a host, not to be able to provide for your guests and to run out of wine, that's like social suicide. It is incredibly embarrassing. It's humiliating for you as a host. Um, and it is the kind of thing that's likely to get you almost basically ostracized from polite society. It's a really big deal. Um, it's not like you can just whip down to the bottle and grab some more. It's not that kind of situation. Um, and so John tells us that the mother of Jesus said to him, John actually never calls her Mary. 
She's always referred to as the mother of Jesus, but when I say always, she's only actually referred to two times uh, in this gospel. Um, but so the mother of Jesus comes to him and, and asks, for, asks for help. Um, and Jesus responds and says, woman, why do you involve me? Uh, I don't know how you hear that, whether you hear it with like a little bit of snark into it. Like, woman, what are you asking me for? Or, you know, or oh, oh, why me? Oh, I don't know. I, I'm not sure how you hear that. Um, when it says woman, he's not belittling her. Uh, it's not a snarky kind of a comment, but there is a little bit of distance in, in it. So it's a polite term, but there's distance. It's almost like, um, this sounds a bit anachronistic, but it would be like saying, oh, dear lady or dear woman or ma'am or something. So it's polite, but distance. It's not like mom, you know? Um, and that's really interesting because one of the things that we're going to see throughout Jesus' ministry is that he's actually going to maintain this kind of distance with his family. We're going to see that come up a lot. Um, and repeatedly throughout Jesus' life and ministry, he's actually going to reinforce to people, my family are the people that do the will of my father. Um, and John has this real concern throughout the gospel to make really clear to us um, that what makes family for Jesus are those who are children of God. And that is something that he throws open to everyone. So when he's distancing himself from his family, it's not because he doesn't care about them. He's going, I don't give a rip about you. I, I care about you know the people that will follow me, um, pay to come to my conferences. It's not that kind of thing. He's redefining belonging, actually. And saying that everyone who believes in him belongs in the kingdom of God. It's actually a really huge welcoming kind of statement that is, that is happening there. Um, now we've got to remember again that this is a culture where family lines are really, really important. Uh, and where a mother can say things to a son that pretty much no one else can. Another thing that's really interesting about this culture is that as a widow, which is generally what most people think that Mary is at this point in time. Okay, we don't know that for sure, but a lot of commentators and historians believe that Mary by this time has actually been widowed. So Joseph the carpenter just isn't on the scene anymore. And so within the Jewish culture uh, at the time, as a widow, Mary is actually a surrogate father. I don't know if you realize that. Um, but she's actually allowed to do some male things in the society because there's no male to lead her. So she's in one sense stepping into her authority as a woman, as a widow, uh, as Jesus' mother. She's kind of stepping into an authority there. Um, and we see that happen a couple of times throughout the Gospels as well. In both Mark 3 and Matthew 12, she actually kind of leads a delegation to try to uh, take Jesus in hand. Okay, come on, Jesus, this is getting a little bit unruly. Um, but each time, Jesus goes, whoa, wait a minute, you're misunderstanding what's happening here. Because the problem is that Jesus actually does have a father, he keeps telling us. He talks about his father in heaven. Uh, and Jesus' desire is to do the will of his father in heaven. Uh, and so, Jesus, in that sense, won't be manipulated into changing his agenda or doing stuff that he, won't want, he, he doesn't want to do. Um, you know, one of the things that we have talked about a lot with this church uh, as kind of a leadership team 
is that the biggest aspect that we want to be a part of the DNA of this church is belonging, is community and relationship. And that's actually what Jesus is all about, creating family, chosen family, that people who identify with Jesus, they become our family and we belong to one another. Um, And that's something that's really going on here. Um, So Jesus responds to his mum by putting a little bit of distance there and saying, you're actually forgetting that I've kind of got an agenda that you're not aware of. He says, my hour has not yet come. And that's another kind of theme term that's going to come up a lot throughout the Gospel of John, this concept that my hour has not yet come or my time has not yet come. Uh, And that actually refers to the cross. Um, Remember in John chapter 1, um, verse 14, which I think you spoke about like three weeks ago now, um, Jesus talks about, or John, sorry, talks about in that little prologue um, that the glory of God being revealed in the person of Jesus says that um, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us and we've seen his glory. Uh, and throughout the Gospel of John, it's pointing to, constantly pointing forward to this time where the glory of God will be fully revealed in Jesus. Uh, and that moment is actually on the cross. It's quite a phenomenal thing. Um, it's something that Paul picks up on in Philippians 2. Um, verses 5 to 11, which is, again, another passage that's kind of a bit misunderstood where um, Paul's actually saying to us uh, that our attitude needs to be the same as Jesus. And he talks about the humility of Jesus in emptying himself, pouring himself out and becoming truly human. Um, And then there's this incredible thing where Paul says um, that because of Jesus' willingness to do that, God exalted him to the highest place. And there's this weird thing that's going on that in the moment that humanly speaking, we would look at Jesus and go, wow, that, that's tragic. That's your worst moment, your lowest moment. That's the moment when um, you're dying on a cross as a criminal and as a sinner. Like that's the lowest of the low. Paul says, no, no, that's when he's exalted. That's when we genuinely see God being God. Not when he's performing or not when he's you know, on stage, not when he, it's in the emptying of himself to rescue and redeem others. That's what it means to be God. And so the whole gospel of John is actually pointing forward to this in a way. And so in this moment, Jesus says to his mom, my hour has not yet come. It's not yet the time for it to be revealed who I truly am. And yet something is about to happen in this passage, and it's, and it's quite a big deal. Um, Mary responds to that by saying, do whatever he says. She gives that kind of command uh, to the servants. So Jesus is calling the shots. She says, follow him, do whatever he, do whatever he asks. So one of the things, another thing to kind of understand about this passage Um, And why is it a big deal? Uh, Is that in the Old Testament, wine is incredibly symbolic. And it's basically almost like a a technical term for the blessing of God and the outpouring of all the good things of God. Uh, And in fact, throughout the Hebrew scriptures, wine is a symbol of God's restoration. It's a symbol of... um, what we, we sometimes call, call it like the end times or the time when God is going to come back and make everything the way that it should be. 
You know, we've got this awesome picture in Genesis 1 of creation being amazing and beautiful and humans being created in Genesis 2 and it's very good, like it's this awesome statement and everything's awesome except that it's not anymore. It's so broken and so wounding and so much is going on that's painful. Um, But the scriptures are pointing forward to a time when things are going to be the way that they should be. And in the Old Testament, wine and the pouring out of wine and the abundance of wine is symbolic of that. Uh, So, for example, uh, in Joel chapter 3, it says, talking about that day of the Lord, in that day the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk. In Amos chapter 9, it says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the one who plows and the planter by the one treading grapes, and new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people back from exile. And in Isaiah 25, it says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people and a banquet of aged wine good wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines, says Isaiah. So this whole concept of wine, like why is is Jesus doing a tricky little thing with wine? It's actually hugely symbolic throughout the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, And in contrast to that, throughout the Hebrew scriptures and into the New Testament as well, water is symbolic of the law and particularly Torah or the Old Testament law the Mosaic laws, so the Ten Commandments, and the ritual purity laws that we've already kind of talked about a little bit. So wine is symbolic of this age to come, this restoration and the abundance of God's blessing, whereas water is symbolic of ritual and law. Um, One commentator who I really love uh, talks about this kind of first seven days that we have in John's gospel as being like a mirror of the creation week that we have in Genesis 1. Uh, and this commentator makes the comment that the, uh, the end of the new creation week sees the turning of the water of Jewish ritual cleansing into the eschatological wine of the spirit. Eschatological just means the end of day's restoration. Um, the other thing that's kind of just a little bit in the background to, to this is uh, some of the Greek myths about Bacchus or Dionysus, um, where there's stories of a fountain flowing with wine and empty bowls filled with wine. And, and so possibly if you're a Greek believer that's hearing the story uh, of John for the first time, you might have a little bit of Bacchus and Dionysus kind of in the back of your head as well. Um, but within those stories, uh, you've got kind of humans wanting to impose order on the gods and the gods going, nah, I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to do what works for me. So what actually happens in this story? You've got someone hosting a wedding that is meant to be the high point of the community and the biggest party of the community. You've got a bridegroom or a groom um, who's thrown this party for his wedding and yet has run out of wine and is just about to be completely socially disgraced. The thing is, the groom doesn't know it yet. M- Mary has gone quietly to Jesus on the side before anyone even realizes that there's a problem and she's alerted Jesus to a problem. And Jesus has gone, it's not my time yet. It's not yet my time to show the world who I truly am. 
And yet, Mary says, but do what he says. There's a, there's somehow there's a trust, there's a faith in her that's just not in the heart of Jesus to allow someone to be socially ruined and embarrassed like that. Uh, and so Jesus looks around him and he sees these six jars. And they're not like your jar of honey at home. Okay, We're talking about massive um, vases, not, not even vases, uh, but massive uh, purification, what would you call them? Vats. Yeah, that's a good one, a vat um, with water. Now those purification jars or the vats of water are specifically for ritual cleansing. Okay, really, really important in the Jewish religion that you maintain ritual, ritual purity and ritual cleansing. So they're for washing your hands and they're for washing the dishes. Incredibly important. Now Jesus says, take those jars, these massive vats. So as we said, they hold between 75 to about 113 liters each. Fill them right up to the very brim. That language is very specific. Take these almost empty jars that are used for ritual, fill them to the brim, and then scoop some of that out and take it to the master of the banquet. That's kind of like the MC, um, you know, organizer of the whole feast. And so the servants do this. They scoop some of the water out and they take it to the master of the banquet. And the master of the banquet sips some and he's like, what the heck is going on here? totally confused and talking amongst themselves, the master of the banquet and the bridegroom and whatever, going, what are you doing? Like everyone's already half tanked at this party, which, you know, that's kind of normal. And now you're pulling out the Bollinger. Like now you're pulling out the really good wine. Now you're pulling out, you know, the awesome. What are you thinking? There's something about this wine that it's not just like some freshly cooked bottle. It's that aged wine, that incredible wine that the Old Testament prophets have been talking about. And there's so much of it. We're talking about 500 to 600 litres of wine that has just been provided. That's a lot. Some of you look very excited. Like, is that going to be there with the Thai dinner? Because I am staying. (laughs) I love it. Oh, dear. So what is going on here? Six stone jars that are normally used for ritual purification to make sure that you're clean before God have been full to the brim and become incredibly beautiful aged wine. The water of the law exchanged for the new wine of blessing and exchanged in incredible abundance. We're going to take some time to reflect on that together, if that's okay, because as we said last week, it's, it's not for me to tell you guys, this is what it means and this is what you have to do. It's for us as a community. In fact, it's part of our um, affirmation, statement of affirmations of belief as a church that we've been working on, um, that theology is the task of the people of God, of the gathered community of God. It's not the task of some old white guy at a desk. It's the task of the people of God together. Uh, and so I would love for us to talk about that. So, um, Bron's going to tell us how that will happen in a second, because um, we're going to give you some time to think about it before we talk about it together. And I want to tell you kind of four implications that have come out of it for me that might guide some of our reflections, so that you can kind of have those in the back of your head, and then we'll talk through some of those uh, when we're ready. So, as the first thing. 
one, first of the implications. At the end of this passage, uh, in verse 11, remember that Jesus had said to Nathaniel, you're going to be seeing greater signs than this, buddy. It's not just I'm going to tell you a story about how I already saw you when you're under the fig tree. You're going to see incredible signs. And in verse 11, John says, this was the first of those signs through which Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now that's really interesting because actually at the end of last week's reading uh, in, I'm trying to find out where it says, um, where Jesus is talking to Peter, it says, and they believed in him. So why is it telling us in chapter two that now the disciples believe in him when we got told that they believed in him last week? Well, maybe, just maybe, belief is not a static thing. Maybe it's not a matter of one time praying a prayer just the right way at the right time. Uh, the second thing for us to think about is that maybe, I mean, there's a lot of wine. Maybe God intends for us to enjoy life. <laughs> I'm just, I'm being careful because I had a very Protestant upbringing. But I'm reading this passage and I'm thinking that maybe we are actually meant to enjoy life responsibly, of course. I uh, hope you've got a plan B. We'll talk about that a little bit more later too. The third thing that it makes me think is that maybe God is not wrestling with self-esteem issues. Maybe God is not wrestling with his self-esteem. Uh, Maybe God is just good. Maybe she knows exactly what she's on about. Uh, and the reason why I say that is because despite what was said at the beginning by Jesus, Jesus does a miracle here. And it's pretty impressive. And I don't know about you, but I would have liked to have been there with my empty glass ready for this one. <laughs> How good would that be? This is a miracle that is gracious and powerful and that has present, prevented someone from being publicly shamed and humiliated, right? Possibly even punished to some extent by the community. Jesus has done a miracle that has uh, rescued the reputation of the bridegroom and given them a wedding to remember. But here's the thing. The groom didn't even know that Jesus did it. John says, this is the first of the signs. But most people have no idea that it happened. So maybe God doesn't have self-esteem issues. Maybe he doesn't have to perform for us. Maybe God is just good within God's self. And the last thing that I want to kind of think about together is that maybe if in this passage... Jesus turns the water of the law into the wine of the spirit of abundance of restoration. Maybe we need to think a little bit more about what it would mean to exchange rule keeping for spirit led living. Maybe we need to think a little bit about that. So those four things, just as we turn to think about them together, maybe belief is not static. Maybe it's not a one-time thing. Uh, maybe God means for life to be enjoyed. Maybe God doesn't have self-esteem issues. Maybe, maybe God is not trying to perform for us 
to prove herself. And the last one, maybe it's time for us to exchange rule-keeping for spirit-led living. Mask. Yeah. Mask. Oh, yeah, sorry. Mask. If you're anything like me, I take some time to think and to process through stuff. Um, I'm definitely not the first person to speak in a group kind of situation. Um, So I thought it might be nice um, to just let us all take a few moments to think and process about what what Karen just shared with us. And then we're we're gonna kind of throw out those four ideas um, if people want to dwell on them a bit more and and discuss that. So um, we're just gonna have a simple song and there's just gonna be something, a video playing there just for three minutes and seven seconds. (laughs) <laughs> and then um, we're gonna just going to chat through some of those implications and kind of flesh and unpack um, the passage together. And Steph's going to graciously press the middle light switch. And I think we are go.
Dr. Leon for his <laughs> skills <laughs> in creating that. Anything that particularly strikes you about what Karen shared? I think, um, like, I really like that idea of God subtly working in the background and we might not really know about it. Um, like, Kaz and I have done a little bit of scuba diving <laughs> and um, snorkeling, and you kind of see this whole world, right? Yeah. That you never even, well, I never even think about, you know, on a day-to-day level. And I guess that's a God showing his creative side as well, though. But that's kind of just happening in the background all the time. Um, creatures celebrating God's goodness, but we never really know. Like, you know, you know, majority of the world will never actually, people in the world will never actually see that going going on. So I think... That God doesn't. Well, you're saying God doesn't have self-esteem issues, or <laughs> yeah, yeah, that need to be acknowledged. Um, Making sure everyone notices yeah, the good things yeah, yeah. that God's done.
the life of Jesus and what's covered in the Gospels. Um, we we kind of have this belief that uh, Jesus' public ministry starts when he's about 30 years old. So he's born and we get the stories of his birth in a couple of the Gospels. Um, you know, not massive detail, but we get stories of his birth. Uh, and then the next story that we get in Matthew is the story when Jesus is 12 and he goes AWOL when they're visiting the temple and freaks everyone out. Um, and then you don't hear anything else again until it's around about 30, okay? And then we think that the majority of Jesus' life that we have info about in the Gospels goes over about three years. And actually the reason why we think that is because in the Gospel of John there's three Passovers talked about and there was one Passover a year. So we think we've got about three years that most, you know, we've got the most information about. But here's the thing, right? There's a few people that have done studies kind of breaking down what actually we are told and what is covered then in the Gospels. And they figured out that we have specific information of around about 55 or 56 days of Jesus' whole life. Okay, so say the guy dies when he's 33 years old, we have specific information on 56 days of his life, Max. And then when you break it down and you start looking at the Gospels, you go, well, what are we actually told? Very few of those days is Jesus, like, speaking at a conference, okay? Sermon on the mountain, sermon on the plain, like addressing a crowd and teaching them. You know, Moses said this, but I'm saying to you, the overwhelming majority of those days that we're given information about is Jesus spending time with a small group of people. So is it redundant? Or is that actually part of the point? What do you reckon? What, why? Why? What is that saying to us? Yeah, I just mean, um, in, in the narrative we have tonight, there's kind of a grand meta-narrative creation and lore and creation and all that kind of stuff, but then also it's just really practical yeah. that Jesus really wanted to have a good party with his friends. Like, it's it's quite clear, and I, I feel like I've been to a lot of churches where the sole intention is to make it as bored as possible, <laughs> and that's holiness. Yeah. Um, and it just reeks of anti-Jesus-ness. Yeah. Um, like, if we, if we just had this narrative, we would assume that church would be a really fun place, and Christians would be really excited, and Throw the best parties, like that will kind of be the narrative that we take because we we see relationship and being together as so important. Mm. Um, and I, yeah, I feel like that's a really poignant observation that you just made. So much of his time is just with people, yeah, and that's what we get recorded. Yeah, um, it, it was really funny. I spent my time reflecting, like, when I first like, kind of like closed my eyes for a little bit, and just like the default over all the years is like what's the sin that you've done this week like you know because that's just like drilled into you every time it's like a reflection it's like think about what you've done wrong this week repent of it and then you know and like that's like and then I was like wait don't fall into that yeah listen to the music listen to the beautiful room around you like how wonderful is this church how great is this community think about like how much like love and joy that is in this room and how excited you get about like spending time with these people and dinners and around I'm like that is so encompassing of like this ritualistic thing yeah. versus this like let's enjoy life together 
and just let that overflow into loveliness where people are like, hey, I want to come be part of that. Like, you know, like just hang out and enjoy and live life like well and to its goodness, you know, and to its fullness. It was just like so fun and like I was like assessing this process in my brain. Have you guys heard that? I don't, I don't know who to attribute this to because I've only ever heard it as someone once said. But uh, so someone once said, but at the wedding of Cana, Jesus turned water into wine, and for 2,000 years the church has been trying to turn it back again. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like one of the big takeaways from this story is don't turn the wine into cordial. <laughs> Um, because it is, it's about abundance and it's about joy and celebration and that seems to be the point abundance Um, and I think it is, it's really significant that God consistently chooses images of feasting and rejoicing to symbolise God's kingdom I don't know what we would choose the cross, baptism dying to self it's one of our favourite phrases in the church dying to self but when God talks about the kingdom feasting and abundance and harmony between humanity and creation and harmony between humanity and one another and all of the nations gathered together without friction. That's how God demonstrates the kingdom. I just, I don't, I don't want to be um, picky either, but I, I just, one of the things that you said, Sammy, got me a little bit where you said, you know, we know the whole point of Jesus coming was to die. Uh, and I know that's that, that song that we always sing at Easter. Um, he lived to die, or whatever it was. But I, again, I think, um, I don't think, hear me carefully, I'm not trying to minimise the cross. Please don't hear me saying that, because that is not what I'm saying. But if it was only about the cross, then Jesus could have just rocked up, made very clear that he was the Messiah, and died on the cross to save us from our sins. That's not what happened. He lived a whole life. And I think we need to lean in and go, what is it that we're intended to lean, to learn and to love about Jesus' life that then helps us to understand the death? Do you know what I mean? I think it's all part of the, part of the point. Um, the life, death and resurrection is all part of the package. Is that? Okay. That's right, I think. Um, like you use the word, uh, my hour has not yet come, Jesus used the word, my hour has not yet come, and you will see his glory, his glory is the death of what you were saying, that he came to die, and that is the revelation of God's glory. Yeah. But I wonder if there's also something that, uh, when he says to Nathaniel, the neighbor said, you'll, you'll see more stuff, yeah. and straight away he sees, like, yes. it's the glory is starting to actually come through, and yes, he did come to yeah. die, um, and that is the ultimate glory in that reversal of whatever I think, like actually no strength is found in weakness. Yeah. Um, but along the way, we're going to see that glory unfold. Yeah. Ways. That's actually embedded in um, in John one fourteen when it says, "We've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, full of face of grace and truth." The Greek word, the way that it talks about glory, is this sense of layers of glory, like glory on glory on glory on glory, like it's a pile of glory. Um, it's not just this one thing that's going to happen that's going to be like, oh, amazing. It's going to be just glory after glory after glory, and it's not going to be what we expect, but it's this abundance of that culminates in the least expected thing. 
changed anyway, right? So, uh, and just thinking about that, but then also um, what my mind kind of turned to is that um, always that comparison of like, are we going to have justice or are we going to have like leniency? And that Jesus is the mediator of that. Like he will meet all the needs, like justice will be served, but the debt will also be paid. Yeah. Um, and there will be grace and there will be justice. And the fact that Jesus performed that in a very physical way for us just kind of like cemented that for me. Um, and also mm -hmm. made me feel more comfortable in my um, love of following the spirit of the law. Like, okay, I get I'm supposed to go 65, but I was going 70 because I was in a rush. <laughs> <laughs> Way, 
which then Jesus becomes the best wine later Yeah, on, that's right. Which I find is, is yeah, well, <laughs> so meta. <laughs> they reckon there's um, they reckon that there's uh, seven signs in the book of John, and this is the first one of them. But all of them are just have rich with symbolism. But some of them are kind of ordinary, like this. They're all quite unexpected. Um, but yeah, they're they're kind of cool. Other thoughts? What do you think about that first thought of um, that that maybe belief isn't static? Great faith. 
place to a foreigner that he says it. It's almost always to someone who is outside of the kingdom of God. Um, it's said to Syrophoenician woman. It's said to... Um, yeah, the centurion. Thank you. I was like, what's the the centurion, like it's people that are not, you know, part of the Jewish sacrificial system, good, you know, good religious boys. Um, there's people outside of that system, and I love it because the Greek is um, mega food. Like that's that's what it says. It's mega. It's huge. But whenever Jesus says you've got little faith, it's actually to one of the in crowd, and the Greek word it's 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 like Jesus says you got peanuts, peanuts. So to these outsiders, Jesus is going, you get it, you've got mega faith. And to these insiders and people that have hung out with him, Jesus sometimes says, hey, um, and one of them is when he's just calm the storm uh, in Matthew. And I just find that really interesting. And he's not saying it as an insult. He's kind of saying, you're the people who claim to get it, you haven't got it yet. But so many of Jesus' miracles are actually about Rescuing people from shame, or from death, or from their fear, or from, you know, they're not massive things that happen in the temple, or when there's, you know, um, and I just, I find that really, really interesting, the personal nature of so many of Jesus' miracles.
haven't kind of touched on. Um, we talked about belief not being static, maybe God meaning for us to enjoy life. Um, yeah. Um, God not wrestling with self-esteem issues, doing stuff because God is as good. Doing this hugely massive symbolic thing and yet doing it in a way that's humble and unnoticed, not doing it because God needs the attention, but because Jesus wanted to, because he cares. Um, and I just love that. I just, I love that this miracle and so many of the miracles, they're not about uh, Jesus propping up his self-belief, um, but it's actually about protecting someone from shame often that they didn't even know was coming. Um, and Jesus just acting anonymously because he's good and he's kind. Uh, and I think sometimes that we can get so angry at God for his uh, indifference. Um, and this miracle, one of the things that it does for me is make me go, maybe, maybe the issue is not that God is somehow indifferent to my pain, but that I'm indifferent to God's goodness. I don't see it. Um, one of my favorite authors who believes differently to me on a whole bunch of different things, but on this particular issue, this author makes the point that sometimes we really wrestle with the nature of God because of just how broken the world is, you know, um, because of gratuitous evil in the world, because there's a flipping pandemic going on that's killing millions of people, because, like, some fertilizer just blew up in Beirut, and a bunch of my friends are homeless, like, what the heck, like, there's this gratuitous evil, um, but this person makes the comment, one of the things we don't think about a lot is, what about all the gratuitous good in the world? Like, it's not just there's a little bit of good, there's, there's actually so much beauty in the world. Bronte talked about the underwater realm that we don't see. There's amazing flowers blooming in the desert that we never see. No human sees. There are galaxies that have never been discovered. Um, there are things that happen for you and I to protect us from danger that we never ever even see. You know, and in the midst of craziness, John and Thomas are moving into a new house. That's awesome. Kara's house is getting more funding. That's awesome. Like, there's great stuff happening in the world. Maybe it would be good for us sometimes when we're worried that God is indifferent to remind ourselves that maybe I'm being indifferent to his goodness. And then the last one was maybe we need to exchange rule-keeping for spirit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We might come uh, on communion now um, as we still kind of hold this yeah, yeah, these guys are going to get dinner. Oh, yeah. Um, communion, the, the bread and the 